Chapter Eight of Raspberry Jam by Carolyn Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Examiner. When after the autopsy, Doctor Harper announced that it was necessary to send for the medical chief examiner, Eunice cried out, "Why? What do you mean? He's the same as a coroner." He takes the place of the coroner nowadays, rejoined Harper, and in Dr. Marsden's opinion, his attendance is necessary. Do you mean Sanford was murdered? Eunice whispered, her face white and drawn. We can't tell, Mrs. Embry. It is a most unusual case. There is absolutely no indication of foul play. But, on the other hand, there is no symptom or condition that tells the reason of his death. That is your finding, Dr. Marsden? Yes, agreed the other. Mr. Embry died because of a sudden and complete paralysis of respiration and circulation. There is nothing we can find to account for that, and by elimination of all other possible causes, we are brought to the consideration of poison not any known or evident poison, but a subtle, mysteriously administered, toxic agent of some sort. You must be crazy! And Eunice faced him with a scornful glance and angry eyes. Who would poison my husband? How could anyone get at him to do it? Why would they, anyway? Dr. Marsden looked at her curiously. Those questions are not for me, madam, he said a little curtly. I shall call Examiner Crowell, and he will take charge of the case. He's the same as a coroner. I won't have him, Eunice declared. It isn't for you to say. Dr. Marsden was already at the telephone. The course of events makes it imperative that I should call Dr. Crowell, He's not a coroner. He is, of course, a civil service appointee, and as such, in authority, you will do whatever he directs. Eunice Embry was silent from sheer astonishment. Never before has she been talked to like this, accustomed to dictate, to give orders, to have her lightest word obeyed. She was dumbfounded at being overruled in this fashion. The men took in the situation more clearly. Medical examiner, exclaimed Hendricks. Is it a case for him? Yes, returned Marsden gravely. At least it is a very mysterious death. Mystery implies wrong of some sort. Had Mr. Embry been a man with a weak heart or any affected organ, I should have been able to make a satisfactory diagnosis. But his sound, perfect condition precludes any reason for this sudden death. It must be looked into. It may be the examiner will find a simple, logical cause. But I admit I can find none, and I am not inexperienced. But if he were poisoned, began Hendricks, as you have implied, surely you could find some trace. That's just the point, agreed Marsden. I certainly think I could, and since I can't, 
I feel it my duty to report it as a mysterious, and to me, inexplicable death. You're right, said Elliot. If you can't find the cause, for heaven's sake get somebody who can. I don't for a minute believe it's a murder, but the barest suspicion of such a thing must be set at rest once and for all. Murder! Ridiculous! But get the examiner by all means. So Eunice's continued objections were set aside and Dr. Crowell was called in. A strange little man the examiner proved to be. He had sharp, bird-like eyes that darted from one person to another and seemed to read their very thoughts. On his entrance, he went straight to Eunice and took her hand. Mrs. Embry, he said positively rather than interrogatively, do not fear me, ma'am. I want to help you, not annoy you. Impressed by his magnetic manner and his encouraging hand-clasp, Eunice melted a little, and her look of angry scorn changed to a half-pleased expression of greeting. Miss Ames, my aunt, she volunteered as Dr. Crowell paused before Aunt Abby. And then the newcomer spoke to the two doctors already present, was introduced to Elliot and Hendricks, who were still there, and in a very decided manner took affairs into his own hands. Yes, yes, he shattered on. I'll help you, Mrs. Embry. Now, Dr. Harper, this is your case, I understand. Dr. Marsden, yours too? Yes, yes, mysterious, you say. Maybe so, maybe so. Let us proceed at once. The little man stood nervously tittering up and down on his toes, almost like a schoolboy preparing to speak a piece. Now, if you please, now, he looked eagerly toward the other doctors. They all went into Embry's room and closed the door. Then Eunice's temporary calm forsook her. It's awful, she cried. I don't want them to bother poor Sanford. Why can't they let him alone? I don't care what killed him. He's dead, and no doctors can help that. Oh, Ovid, can't you make them let San alone? No, Eunice, it has to be. Keep quiet, dear. It can do no good for you to get all wrote up, and if you would go and lie down. For heaven's sake, stop telling me to go and lie down. If one more person says that to me, I shall just perfectly fly. Now, Eunice, began Aunt Abby, it's only for your own good, dear. You are all excited and nervous. Of course I am. Who wouldn't be? Mason? She looked around at the concerned faces. I believe you understand me best. You know I don't want to go and lie down, don't you? Stay where you are, child. Elliot smiled kindly at her. Of course, you're nervous and upset. All you can do is to try to hold yourself together. And don't try that too hard either, for you may defeat your own ends thereby. Just wait, Eunice. Sit still and wait. 
They all waited, and after what seemed an interminable time, the examiner reappeared and the other two doctors with him. Well, well, Crowell began, his restless hands twisting themselves round each other. Now, be quiet, Mrs. Embury. I declare, I don't know how to say what I have to say, if you sit there like a chained tiger. Go on. Eunice now seemed to usurp something of Crowell's own dictatorship. Go on, Dr. Crowell. Well, ma'am, I will. But there's not much to tell. Our principal evidence is lack of evidence. What do you mean? cried Eunice. Talk English, please. I am doing so. There is positively no evidence that Mr. Embry was poisoned. Yet, owing to the absolute lack of any hint of any other means of death, we are forced to the conclusion that he was poisoned. By his own hand? asked Hendricks, his face grave. Probably not. You see, sir, with no knowledge of how the poison was administered, with no suspicion of any reason for its being administered, we are working in the dark. I should say so, exclaimed Elliot. Black darkness, I call it. Are you within your rights in assuming poison? Entirely. It has to be the truth. No agent but a swift, subtle poison could have cut off the victim's life like that. Crowell was now walking up and down the room. He was a restless, nervous man, and under stress of anxiety, he became almost hysterical. I don't know, he cried out, as one in an extremity of uncertainty. It must be poison. It must have been murder. He pronounced the last word in a gasping way, as if afraid to suggest it, but forced to do so. Hendricks looked at him with a slight touch of contempt in his glance, but seeing this, Dr. Harper interjected. The examiner is regretting the necessity of thrusting his convictions upon you, but he knows it must be done. Yes, said Crowell, more decidedly now. I have had cases before where murder was committed in such an almost undiscoverable way as this. Never a case quite so mysterious, but nearly so. What is your theory of the method? asked Elliot, who was staggered by the rush of thoughts and conclusions made inevitable by the examiner's report. That's the greatest mystery of all. Crowell replied. He was quite calm now. Apparently it was concern for the family that had made him so disturbed. Poison was not taken by way of the stomach, that is certain. Therefore, it must have been introduced through some other channel. But we find no trace of hypodermic needle. How utterly ridiculous! Eunice exclaimed, her eyes blazing with scorn. How could anyone get in to poison my husband? Why, we lock all our doors at night. We always have. Yes'm, exactly, ma'am. Crowell began, rubbing his hands again. 
and now please tell me of the locking up last night as usual ma'am as usual precisely our sleeping rooms are those three she pointed to the bedrooms when they are locked they form a unit by themselves quite apart from the rest of the apartment dr crowell looked interested the apartment faced on park avenue and being on the corner had also windows on the side street front enumerating from the corner and running south were the dining room the large living room and the good-sized reception hall directly back of these and with windows on a large court were the three bedrooms eunice's in the middle sanford's back of the hall and aunt abby's back of the dining room aunt abby's room was ordinarily eunice's boudoir and dressing room but was used as a guest chamber on occasion these three bedrooms as was shown to examiner crowell when locked from the inside were shut off by themselves although allowing free communication from one to another of them lock with keys he asked no eunice replied there are big strong snap locks on the inside of the doors i mean locks that fasten themselves when you shut the door unless you have previously put up the catch yes i see and crowell looked into the matter for himself spring catches and mighty strong ones too and these were always fastened at night always eunice declared mr embry was not afraid of burglars but it was his lifelong habit to sleep with a locked door and he couldn't get over it then and the bird-like little eyes darted from one to another of his listeners and paused at aunt abby then miss ames you were also locked in each night with your niece and her husband safe from intruders yes and aunt abby looked a little startled at being addressed i don't sleep with my door locked at home and it bothered me at first but you see my room has no outlet except through mrs embry's bedroom so as the door between her room and mine was never locked it really made little difference to me oh is that the way of it and dr crowell rose in his hasty manner and dashed in at eunice's door this the middle room opened on the right to the boudoir and on the left to embry's room the latter door was closed and crowell turned toward the boudoir now aunt abby's bedroom a small bed had been put up for her there and the room was quite large enough to be comfortable it was luxuriously furnished and the appointments were quite in keeping with the dainty tastes of the mistress of the house crowell darted here and there about the room he looked out of the rear windows which faced on the court out of a window that faced on the side street peeped into the bathroom and then hurried back to eunice's own room here he observed the one large window which was a triple bay 
and which, of course, opened on the court. He glanced at Embry's closed door and then returned to the living room and again faced his audience. Nobody came in from the outside, he announced. The windows show a sheer drop of ten stories to the ground, no balconies or fire escapes. So our problem resolves itself into two possibilities. Mr. Embry was given the poison by someone already inside those locked doors, or the doors were not locked. The restless hands were still now. The examiner bore the aspect of a bomb-thrower who had exploded his missile and calmly awaited the result. His darting eyes flew from face to face as if he were looking for a criminal then and there. He sat motionless, save for his constantly moving eyeballs, and for a moment no word was spoken by anyone. Then Eunice said, with no trace of anger or excitement, you mean some intruder was concealed in there when we went to bed? Crowell turned on her a look of undistinguished admiration. More, he seemed struck with a sudden joy of finding a possible loophole from the implication he had meant to convey. I never thought of that, he said, slowly piercing her with his intent gaze. It may be, but Mrs. Embry... In that case, where is the intruder now? How did he get out? Rubbish! cried Miss Ames caustically. There never was any intruder. I mean, not in our rooms. Ridiculous! Of course the doors were not locked. They were unintentionally left open. I don't believe they are locked half the time. And your intruder came in through these other rooms. Yes, agreed Hendricks. That must have been the way of it. Dr. Crowell, if you're sure this is a... a... Oh, it isn't. Who would kill Embry? Your theory presupposes a motive. What was it? Robbery? Is anything missing? Nobody could answer this question, and Ferdinand, as one familiar with his master's belongings, was sent into the room of death to investigate. Unwillingly, and only after a repeated order, the man went. No, ma'am, he said, on his return, addressing Eunice. None of Mr. Embry's things are gone. All his pins and cufflinks are in their boxes, and his watch is on the chiffonier, where he always leaves it. Then, resumed Hendricks, what motive can you suggest, Dr. Crowell? It's not for me, sir, to go so far as that. I see it this way. I am positive the man was killed by foul means. I am sure he was poisoned, though I can't say how. I, you see, I haven't been medical examiner very long, and I never had such a hard duty to perform before. But it is my duty, and I must do it. I must report to headquarters. You shan't! Eunice flew across the room and stood before him, her whole body quivering with intense rage. I forbid it! I'm Sanford Embry's wife, and as such I have rights that shall not be imposed upon. I will have no police dragged into this matter. 
were my husband really murdered which of course he was not i would rather never have the murder discovered or punished than to have the degradation the horrors of a police case the infinite scorn with which she brought out the last phrase showed her earnestness and her determination to have the matter pushed no further but examiner crowell was by no means the inefficient little man he looked his eyes took on a new glitter and narrowed as they looked at the angry woman before him i am sorry mrs embury he said gently but with a strong decision in his tone but your wishes cannot be considered the law is inexorable the mystery of this case is deepened rather than lessened by your extraordinary behaviour and i must but his brief manner quailed before the lightning of eunice's eyes what she cried you defy me you will call the police against my desire my command you will not sir i forbid it crowell looked at her with a new interest it would seem he had discovered a new species of humanity doubtless he had never seen a woman like that in his previous experience for eunice was no shrew she did not for a moment lose her poise or her dignity indeed she was rather more imperious and dominating in her intense anger than when more serene but she carried conviction both elliot and hendricks hoped and believed she could sway the examiner to her will aunt abby merely sat nodding her head in corroboration of eunice's speeches yes yes that's so she murmured unheeding whether she were heard or not the examiner however paid little attention to the decrees of the angry woman he looked at eunice curiously even admiringly and then went across the room to the telephone eunice flew after him and snatched the instrument from his hand stop she cried fairly beside herself with fury you shall not both elliot and hendricks sprang from their chairs and dr harper rose to take care of eunice as an irresponsible patient but crowell waved them all back sit down gentlemen he said mrs embury think a minute if you act like that you will you inevitably will draw suspicion on yourself i don't care she screamed better than the the publicity the shame of a police investigation oh sanford my husband it was quite clear that uppermost in her disturbed mind was the dread of disgrace of the police inquiry this had dulled her poignant grief her horror her sadness all had been lost in the immediate fear of the impending unpleasantness and too the examiner went on coldly it is useless for you to rant around like that i'll simply go to another telephone eunice stepped back and looked at him more in surprise than submission to be told that she was ranting around was not the way in which she was usually spoken to 
Moreover, she realized it was true that to jerk the telephone away from Dr. Crowell could not permanently prevent his sending his message. She tried another tact. I beg your pardon, doctor, she said, and her expression was that of a sad and sorry child. You're right. I mustn't lose my temper so. But you know, I am under a severe mental strain, and something should be forgiven me, some allowance made for my dreadful position. Yes, ma'am. Oh, certainly, ma'am. Crowell was again nervous and restless. He proved that he could withstand an angry woman far better than a supplicating one. Eunice saw this and followed up her advantage. And so, doctor, try to appreciate how I feel, a newly made widow, my husband dead, from some unknown cause, but which I know is not murder. After a second's hesitation, she pronounced the awful word clearly. And you want to add to my terror and distress by calling in the police, of all things, the police. Yes, ma'am, I know it's too bad, but my duty, ma'am. Your duty is first to me. Eunice's smile was dazzling. It had been a callous heart, indeed, that would not be touched by it. To you, ma'am? The examiner's tone was innocence itself. Yes, Eunice faltered, for she began to realize she was not gaining ground. You owe me the, don't they call it the benefit of the doubt? What doubt, ma'am? Why, doubt as to murder? If my husband died a natural death, you know there is no reason to call the police. And as you are not sure, I claim that you must give me the benefit of your doubt and not call them. Now, ma'am, you don't put that just right. You see, the police are the people who must settle that doubt. It's that very doubt that makes it necessary to call them. And truly, Mrs. Embry, it won't be any such horrible ordeal as you seem to anticipate. They're decent men, and all they want to get at is the truth. That isn't so. Eunice was angry again. They're horrible men, rude, unkept, low-down, common men. I won't have them in my house. You have no right to insist on it. They will be all over the rooms, prying into everything, looking here, there, and all over. They'll ask impertinent questions. They'll assume all sorts of things that aren't true, and they'll wind up by coming to a positively false conclusion. Ovid, Mason, you're my friends. Help me out. Don't let this man do as he threatens. Listen, Eunice, Elliot said, striving to quiet her. We can't help the necessity Dr. Crowell sees of notifying the police, but we can help you. Only, however, if you will be sensible, dear, and trust to our word that it can't be helped, and you must let it go on quietly. Oh, hush up, Mason. Your talk drives me crazy. Olvid, are you a broken reed, too? Is there nobody to stand by me? I'll try. 
and Hendricks went and spoke to Dr. Crowell in low tones. A whispered colloquy followed, but soon became clear that Hendricks' pleas, of whatever nature, were unsuccessful, and he returned to Eunice's side. "'Nothing doing,' he said with an attempt at lightness. "'He won't listen to reason, nor to bribery and corruption.' This last was said openly and with a smile that robbed the idea of any real seriousness. And then Dr. Crowell again lifted the telephone and called up headquarters. End of chapter 8